And now a message from our sponsor. Hey everybody, it's Bootleg Captain, Captain Bootlegs here. Yeah. If you're like me, I bet you're enjoying this Toys, Toys on, on Tap, Tap podcast. Yeah, I am enjoying it, it's very nice. But did you know you can enjoy it more just by joining that Patreon? Oh, I did not know that. There are so many cool perks available on the Patreon for you. There's and also and Wow, that's really a lot of stuff if you ask Bootleg Captain. Captain I don't bootleg. understand. There were noises I couldn't hear with the person. So join today to support Toys on Tap podcast and Bootleg Art Toys. But if you're not in a position to join the Patreon, head on over to Apple iTunes and review and subscribe. That helps out the channel as well. Okay, I'll go rate it, I guess. And remember, listen to Toys, Toys on, on Tap. Captain Bootleg, the bootleg captain sent you. Why does he keep referring to himself in the third Can person? I stop with the stupid voice now? I'm not sure why you made me want to sound like a pirate. Oh, so that was a fake voice. Oh, yucko! I didn't realize it was just pretend voice. Oh, okay. Let's do a refresher. So you okay. you ended with um, the golden age and you, we had talked through you growing up, the parents uh, separate, and then you going through, uh, we talked nipple clamps, we talked your dad as like this genius engineer type, um, and we kept going. And then we kind of ended more on like a, um, like a meta note of the class system and like, how that was, it's problematic that the the class system, like once you're born into a class, you can't get out of it, but you do what you can in that class and explaining how um, your dad and your mom didn't ever get out of it, but they taught you like those work hard ethics and all those things. Interesting, because that does kind of play in a little bit to where this, this is about to go. Not necessarily in a socioeconomic class, but like there's also a class system in high school yeah and that's kind of where this is going to start to just to to, to tie it up i was the, the quintessential nerd nerdy kid the classic mm-hmm. you know with the the long greasy hair the fucking glasses held together with tape my entire wardrobe consisted of high water jeans and star wars t-shirts <laughs> and had no interest in anything other than like my my nerdy pursuits and i was very successful in that regard you know, I was the king of the nerds. I had all the Star Wars toys. I had, you know, I had seen Star Wars more than anybody else. And I had, and I, and I was, I was so prolific in this area. But then this is around 1984, 85, you know, Star Wars was over. It was like, there was no more movies coming out. There was all kinds of other shit like G.I. Joe and He-Man and Ninja Turtles and all that stuff. But Star Wars was over and this is also right about the time i'm going into high school you know and starting you know and i'm entering puberty now and suddenly my old interests weren't doing it for me anymore you know and i was very aware that i was in the nerd cast you know that i people liked me but i was definitely i wasn't one of the cool kids in my mind there was a very distinct separation between the nerds and the popular kids and I was like, I refuse to go into high school and I'm and being part of this sort of lower class. I'm going to move into the cool kid category okay. somehow. Yeah. You know, and I made a very deliberate effort in doing that. So I remember like I used to get teased a lot, you know, like because I wasn't into like 
the cool music or anything like that. Like my idea of listening to music was like the Raiders of the Lost Ark soundtrack. <laughs> and it was just so weird because I was growing up and it's such a seminal time in New York City, you know, the early mid eighties, you know, I remember like breakdancing was first coming out, you know, where you would actually see the fucking Rocksteady crew, like just out yeah. in, out, out, you know, these are legendary figures now that were just out there, you know, with their little cardboard set up. And I always thought this stuff was cool, but I didn't, I didn't think it was for me, you know, graffiti, the golden age of graffiti, these legendary, you know, like gods of graffiti would just be on the subways, you know, like Dondi pieces would be rolling through. And I, and I knew these person by like two or three degrees of separation by like kids I was going to school with and I liked it, but it never felt like something that was for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, downtown New York was popping, like Andy Warhol was still alive and walking around Basquiat and places like the Mud Club and all these legendary places. I remember walking around in the subway and literally seeing Keith fucking Haring in the middle of the day writing chalk on the fucking walls. And yeah. not thinking anything of it. Oh, there's that guy we read about in the New York Post or whatever. Don't care. Where's Star Wars? You know, like none of it mattered to me. And like I couldn't, you know, but and it was like always felt separate to me. And I'm going into high school now and I'm realizing like I have to I have to get in on this because I want to I, you know, I want to be part of the fun. And the first thing that really cracked the window was this was also the golden age of MTV. And it was the Michael Jackson thriller video came out and I was a big fan of American Werewolf in London. So this video got me watching MTV and then I started finding myself, you know, liking Culture Club and Duran Duran and, you know, um, Billy Idol. And then that's when I started being like, okay, I'm entering 10th grade. I went to ninth grade in junior high school. Yeah. I'm going into 10th grade. It's like 84, 85. And it's like, I had been in there for like a couple of weeks as my nerd self. And I'm just like, I can't. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to do something about this. And I don't know where I got my money from, but I convinced my parents to get me contact lenses because I mm -hmm. had to lose the nerd glasses. And at the time in my mind, there was no such thing as cool glasses. You yeah. know, glasses was, I needed to remove all the symbols of my association with that world. So I, I got, you know, I got the contact lenses. I went to like a cool haircut place. Like I think I eventually I started going to Astor, Astor Place, which was like the, the, the place to go to get, you know, all your punk cuts. But this was just before that. I went to some salon and I bought hairspray and I started doing this thing with my hair. And I would go down to the, to, down into Soho and there was all these famous stores at the time. There was Canal Jeans, uh, Antique Boutique, and another place called Unique. You know, when they would do the airbrush shirts. And I got together a little bit of money and I bought some like neon t-shirts and some like Duran Duran collar shirts and like different pants and people were really into those webo bracelets remember that they yeah. look like big o-rings you know from a gi joe figure and yeah. people would just wear these arms of them you know and i started going to eighth street you know and going to all the cool little stores and buying all this jewelry and i got my ear pierced and i was like oh my god i could you know i was, felt so scared to go to school with this look yeah because i thought i was going to be rejected you know and a couple of people teased me because it was instant it was like friday i left school and i was a nerd and then monday i came back and i was trying to be a cool kid <laughs> it was so deliberate and obvious and you know i took a little bit of ribbing from it but nobody really fucking cared 
and it's like okay I'm you know I'm, I'm you know and I and I you know and I started passing as a cool kid nobody really gave a shit and I'm cool I was always cool yeah I just didn't I was the only person that had a problem with it so I'm sort of making it in this scene and I had this one older friend this girl that I grew up next door to who was a little further along with me and she was already into bad girl shit by like 13 14 15 she was already having sex and taking drugs and running away from home and everything like that and she sort of took me under her wing and like I was then moving from that point in, from just being like this sort of vague MTV new wave poser into the local punk scene because okay. the punk the punk scene was where it was at there was no way I was going to be a b-boy but I could pass in the punk world and like there was this whole scene on a street and st mark's place and washington square park where like all all these hardcore punk scene was popping off and i was going to attempt to join that because i was starting to go out more and leave the house and yeah. not um you know not stay home anymore i remember the, the the very last thing i remember was like the ninja turtles i had like a couple of them i didn't even have all four of the turtles and i just didn't want them anymore and they, they just disappeared from my mind and all i wanted to do was like listen to punk and like I used to go to bleaker bobs and go dig through records and you know it was like I, listening to mtv shit wasn't cool any you know yeah really that wasn't really where it was at and the thing is in order to like be part of the scene you had to smoke pot you know? <laughs> and this was like a big deal for me yeah because like i was a scaredy cat and like, I didn't know what it was going to do to me, but I was intrigued by it. And I, I kind of got the thought in my mind that like smoking pot was going to be my way in. Mm -hmm. Like once I smoke pot, that's it. I'm a bad kid now, you know? Yeah. So I had to do it and I found, you know, I, it was no, no problem finding a way to do it because everyone, I, everyone I knew that wasn't in the nerd group was smoking weed, like, and you know, smoking weed outside of the, outside of school on the stoops. That was the big thing, smoking weed on stoops in the village. Yeah. And so, you know, you go to the Washington Square Park, and we used to buy the weed from like dudes in the park, nickel bags and dime bags, five and ten dollar little bags, and it would always be like the worst swaggiest yeah. shit you'd ever find, even if it, even if it was if it was weed at all, mm -hmm. you know, and this was terrifying rite of passage for me to have to like go out on like after school on Friday with my little $10 and go to Washington square park. And all these guys would be standing around going, Sess, Sess, Sess. That's what it could sense Mia was like the Jamaican <laughs> term for a certain type of weed. And like the sort of broken down street word for it was, was Sess or Chiba or whatever, you know, these were like, and we would go in, you know, to the park and, some of the guys selling this stuff would be scary dudes, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you have to get them to make sure you're not getting ripped off. You have to like open it and smell it. And I was so terrified, you know, so many times we would buy these bags of weed and it wouldn't be weed, you okay. know, like they used to do this trick where they would take like dried leaves and roll it in airplane glue. So it would clump together and make little buds. Yeah. And we would buy this shit. We'd spend our last $10 on it and then take it home. So my mom used to, had a had a girlfriend outside of town so she i had the apartment to myself on the weekend so i could do all this fucked up shit and we'd smoke it and go, you know you smoke an airplane glue it's like 
oh fuck and then you're beat and you and then you yeah. spent your money you got nothing to do and you can't do anything and it was always like get the weed from the rosters you yeah. know get the weed from the rosters because they always had the good shit and they had much more of an honor system around you know about around the smoke because you know you know it was supposedly part of their religion and you know i remember the first time i ever bought an actual bud you know that wasn't just a bag of bag of of green dust or dark yeah. green dust i was like oh my god this is incredible and and i took to that very well because it had a, a nerdy aspect to it okay so let's you know, pause like, real quick okay so are you fighting uh i like that you ended right there with the it had a nerdy aspect are you fighting this like inner turmoil of you remember who you were and you're trying to be this other person Yes, absolutely. Because I remember as I was starting to become a punk rocker, there was this, there was this very, there was this the stigma of being a poser. Yeah. That was a word that got tossed around a lot, a poser, somebody who was a phony or a, a pretender. And I was definitely a poser. I mean, I was trying to be, fit in, but I was still, I was so green. I was such a little fraidy cat and I just was very quiet. It's like, and I just wasn't, you know, and I just, you know, I didn't have the deep knowledge of things like I'd walk around with like a cramps t-shirt and I knew like one cramps song, you yeah. know, or just like, but, you know, I was trying my best and like I had these combat boots, but they were like the wrong combat boots because they were like <laughs> immos. I remember they were like, like all the, I kept getting called out, like, uh, like someone saw these combat boots that I wore, you need to get them at the surplus store. I didn't know any, but I bought a new pair of combat boots. And someone was like, yo, those are immos. I mean, what do you mean immos? They're imitations. They're not really made by the US Army. You know, mm -hmm. those are just reproductions. Like, oh, fuck. You know, or we had like, you know, skateboarding was also a big thing too. And I bought a skateboard, but I didn't have a lot of money. I couldn't get like a real skateboard with the Powell Peralta deck and the trucks and all that shit. You know, people were getting their skateboards custom assembled with the rat bones, wheels. This was like, you know, a little bit before like the shut skateboards era, but this was like yeah. the sort of prototype skateboard era in new york city where it was like very much like a street thing and so we bought our skateboards at the at paragon sporting goods you know and it came like finished wrapped in shrink wrap yeah and it was like a junky skateboard but it worked and they were ironically called imposter mm. the skateboard was called the imposter and it said imposter on it and me and my two other geeky friends that i dragged into this life with me both had those skateboards. Also, we were known as the imposter crew, yeah. you know, and it just couldn't shake, shake that feeling, you know, and as I saw, you know, I was trying, I was trying the best that I could, you know, but I just really didn't fit in because there was like committed people like I'm hanging out in Washington Square Park, smoking park, smoking pot with like 13 year old kids that had been run away from home years ago and were living in the squats in Alphabet mm -hmm. City. You know, and we're, you know, they were sneaking these kids into the shows at CBGB's, you know, in, in like in the drums, they like would hide these, <laughs> you know, and like this, like, like the Cro-Mags was like the big band, the Cro-Mags, the Bad Brains, and everybody knew each other. And like, and there's all this going around CBGB's and everything. And I'd never even been to fucking CBGB's. I was like, you know, I was, a, I was a fraud, you know, I tried like the first show I ever went to, uh, was Motorhead I went oh. by myself. Yeah, And this was like probably like 1985, the first show I ever went to at this place called The Ritz. Now it's called Webster Hall, but it was called The Ritz at the time. And this was like a, you know, mid-sized venue where like a lot of these acts on this level would play. We went to see the Cro-Mags and, and Motorhead and Cro-Mags canceled. And I'm there, I'm by myself, I'm wearing my little 
army jacket from canal jeans and these pair of doc martin boots that are one size too big yeah uh and i'm trying to mosh you know and i got in the mosh pit i'm you know you know did the best i can it was like the mosh the slam dancing culture was really tight at the time you know you fall down they pick you up i was like hey i'm out here i'm really doing it but i was there completely by myself and it didn't matter and the police came and shut it down at five o'clock in the morning (laughs) because it was too loud but it was like that was like probably like the only thing i'd ever did and what really i gravitated towards in all of this was was the weed smoking i mean you know like i was making the scene like we would go down to saint mark's place and and my friend took me to like manic panic and yeah. brought like the, the yellow hair dye and then for the next day everyone called me piss head you know and then i had to dye my hair blonde because it looked ridiculous what we would do you know but the thing you know we would it was always around the pot like we'd go by the weed in the in the park and then we'd go to see like the Rocky Horror Picture Show yeah. at the 8th Street Playhouse because you can smoke weed in the theater. And that was like, that was like the biggest, that's like the most epic thing I ever, you know, did. But it was really the pot smoking that really captivated me because there was a, a geeky attitude towards it. You know, I got into the paraphernalia and the bongs and all the different types of weed that you could get. I mean, it wasn't like it is today, but you know, we knew the difference between, I was like hash and we knew the difference between like good, you know, like, you know, like Jamaican weed and lamb's bread and all these different types of weed that was out at the time and all the different ways to smoke it. Yeah. And that really, I really got into that because I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was really into the Freak Brothers comic book. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like they were, I, so I knew about drugs, a lot about drugs. And I used to, when I was a kid, I had a so- cigar box full of candy and I would be like, oh, the Slim Jims are my joints. <laughs> and like these, the Mike and Ikes are like the Reds. And like, you know, the, uh, the, the jelly beans are the downers. Like, I didn't really know what I was talking about, but yeah. I, I had a mind for this shit. So it was really the weed smoking was what got me really. We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. DOV2, we have engine failure. We must crash land on DKE Toy Planet. Oh my. Wait! Salvation! Hooray! We're saved, DLP2! Limited edition custom artist-made action figures and DKE Toys! Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures! DKE! Involved in the, in the, in the, the counterculture scene. Did it and, uh, ever creep into other areas? Because I know this is the time when Quaaludes become huge right now. And so oh, does it ever creep kind of into that area? Well, no, I don't remember ever being offered a Quaalude ever. I remember as I went on in my drug explorations, uh, people would talk about Quaaludes as this legendary thing, yeah. you know, that was like, that you that you know, that was only unique to the 60s. But what happened was, as I started getting more into the drug culture, the sort of punk stuff started appealing to me less. Like at the end of the day, it was aggressive, mm-hmm. you know, and it was very just, you know, there was an anger there and there was just sort of like a, a lot of displacement and a lot of the, you know, that I mean, you see a lot of people that were a couple of years older than me that I knew were all dying and getting arrested and living living these very bleak lives and as much as i liked the music it was like it was you know it was sort of like limiting 
And I, as I started really getting into the head that the pot was making for me, I started being more attracted to wanting to take LSD. Okay. That was popular. And there was a lot of kids around me that were into that shit. And finally, like, just by being around and asking around, I think I was in 11th grade, uh, I, I got a few people together and we got some blotter acid. Mm -hmm. And I remember so distinctly, they were called Eschers because, you know, they still do this. But at the time, you know, the blotter acid had artwork on it. Yeah. And this, one, and this acid, we got a little strip of like six hits um, with a drawing by MC Escher on it, you know. <laughs> And um, it was just like this Mobius strip, a black and white grayscale, like Mobius strip with these spheres rolling on it. And I remember that image just stuck in my mind when I took, took that shit. And also it was gray and it didn't look like hippie LSD, you know, and there's something about a New York acid trip that's different than like a hippie acid trip, just yeah. because you're in a very inorganic environment. It's dark, it's gray, and there's just like crazy shit going on. And it was a, tumultuous trip but it, you know it opened my fucking mind up and like it got me you know in the psychedelic mindset and i remember when i was going to sleep that night or trying to sleep and listening to the radio and cashmere by led zeppelin came on <laughs> yeah. and like i didn't really wasn't that familiar with that with led zeppelin because if you were a punk rocker you were supposed to hate led zeppelin yeah you know there was a very distinct line between the metal heads and the punk rockers you know they always hated each other and like the and like led zeppelin was heavy metal and you weren't allowed to listen to that but you know listening to that song and all the seeing all these hieroglyphics in my head and everything I was like wow this is really spoke to me and this is when i started getting into 60s nostalgia you know i was just not into the world at the time that i lived in which is a shame because it was a fucking classic time but it just wasn't where my head was at and i started taking more psychedelics and just getting more into listening to that music. Like my mom had this whole record collection and it was like first time hearing like the White Album and Sgt. Mm -hmm. Pepper. And I started getting into all that stuff. I became obsessed with like Charles Manson and the secret messages and all the Beatle records. And I just like, and I, my hair, I started growing my hair out, you know? And then, so I went from like 10th grade being this little, little wannabe Duran Duran guy to like a sort of Billy Idol clone to like a, a wannabe skinhead to like a full grown, full-blown hippie with long hair and linen glasses throwing peace signs yeah feeling like i was born in the wrong time you know and um th and that's 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 where i that's where i was i was still a virgin i failed with women all through high school i couldn't make it happen even though i had plenty of opportunities i just still wasn't there and it was going to take a lot more time to, to fucking figure it out. But when I got out of high school, I was very much like, I, I hate New York and I don't want to be, and I'm like, I'm a, I'm a hippie and I got to get out of here somehow. And of course I was a terrible, absolutely terrible student. Yeah. I, I had like C average. I had no interest in anything other than smoking pot and like painting in fluorescent colors so I could set <laughs> them up next to my lava lamp and my, and my, and my black lights. Yeah. And I got into this fucking, the only college that would take me was Buffalo State College. Never even heard of it. I mean, you've heard of the city of Buffalo, right? Yeah, yeah. It's famous for snow. Okay. And it's on the, it's like on the Western part of New York. And you know, 
it's like every state has like a university and then like a, every city, you know, of, of any note in America has like a university mm-hmm. and a state college. So I got picked to go to this random ass college. And I was a mess because I felt like not losing my virginity in high school. I was carrying this like albatross with me into college. You know, I like had this vision of myself of just being free and having all this sex. But like the fact that I still hadn't solved that problem yeah. gave me a real com- complex. And like, I was like a little hippie and like, I, I couldn't really, I wasn't, it was like a non-event of a year. The most sort of significant thing that happened to me there was that I went in as an art major, mm-hmm. you know, cause I was into drawing and comics and, you know, I always had like a creative side to me and I was like, I'm going to be an art major. So I took this draw, drawing class, you know, formal drawing to the charcoal and all, and, you know, having to make realistic drawings and I had no aptitude for it at all. And I failed. I what is, okay. What is that feeling? Cause you, you see yourself as a bit of an artist and you see yourself as a creative but then the first class where it's like that kind of intentional stuff, you fail. What is that feeling like? Well, I just remember feeling angry and resentful about, about it. But I also realized that I deserved to fail because I didn't master the work. I mean, yeah. I was more far, I wasn't so much frustrated about getting the F. I mean, it didn't feel good. And I thought the teacher could have at least given me a D because I tried. <laughs> I tried. I just didn't. She was a little bit of a meanie. I mean, it wasn't like I didn't try. I just my brain and my eye didn't work that way. And I didn't have any talent for, you know, realistic drawing. And I yeah. just was felt like, I just felt like I had fucked up and then, but I was still young enough to like, not really care. I was just like, Oh, well, I guess I'm not going to be an artist then. Fuck it. Mm-hmm. You know, because I had also, I was also interested in music and I had started, uh, took up the bass, okay. you know, like, like I, I started just, really getting like I got really really into Led Zeppelin and that was the first time in music that I really paid attention to the to bass guitar Mm -hmm. you know because John Paul Jones you know like you listen to punk rock even stuff like The Clash once in a while there'll be a song where there's like the bass stands out but most of the time you know the bass is just sort of playing what the guitar is playing especially a lot of punk music they they it's very trebly and so I'm listening to John Paul Jones on songs like Ramble On where like there's this melodic bass line with these warm bass tones and I'm like whoa that just attracted me so I I got myself a cheapy bass and started taking lessons and started learning and I figured all right I'm not really in college I was only in college because I didn't know what else to do with myself I didn't give a shit at all Mm -hmm. I just figured like this is a way for my parents to give me money while I smoke weed and play my bass yeah and try to get laid. So I was like, okay, I tried being a biology major. I tried being a psychology major. None of that, none of that shit worked out. So I just was majorless. And I was just like doing the bare minimum academically. And I'm in this place, school in Buffalo, and I'm not really connecting with anybody. I'm still a virgin. And then towards the end of the end of the year, I fall in with this group of, of deadheads. Yeah. You know, and I, I didn't know much about the Grateful Dead. And but I had seen a lot of the imagery. You know, the skulls and all the psychedelic shit. I was like, wow, this must be some heavy shit, right? So I started hanging out with these 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 deadheads. And I just remember I spent a couple of weeks of the summer in Buffalo crashing with a friend. And I was so naive. I'm like just walking down the street. Never been to a Grateful Dead concert or anything. And only had a half notion of what they were about. And this car pulls up. 
full of all these like hippies that I knew. Mm -hmm. And they were very much people I wanted to be in with because I was still very much on this hippie trip. And I felt like these are my people. And they're like, hey, we're, we're going to see the dead at the Ohio Raceway, you know, hop in. And I was like, okay, so they're gonna about to drive like 12 hours into like rural Ohio to go see this concert. I didn't have a ticket. I didn't have any money. Yeah. I, I didn't even have a change of clothes or a toothbrush. And I just got in the car. Cause like there was this mythology that, you know, that there was something magical about the Grateful Dead. And that yeah. like, if you really just believed you were gonna get this miracle and it was just gonna carry you along <laughs> and all your needs would be met, right? So I figured, okay, I'll be taken care of, you know, it's the Grateful Dead. And like, I really believed all of this shit. And I believed in that hippie ethos that like, you know, like I didn't need anything except the clothes on my back and good friends and a doobie to smoke and some yeah. good tunes. So I get in this crowded car and we're going and we're going and we're going and we're going and we drive through the night. And, and I finally get there and it's in this dust bowl of a, of a racetrack, you know, and it's hot. It's like six o'clock in the morning. We have no tent. We have no nothing. And the show doesn't start for like, you know, 12 hours. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm already covered in sweat and my socks are sweated through and I haven't brushed my teeth. I have no money. I have nothing to eat. And I'm smoking like a fiend. And, and I just, I'm exhausted. And I have this fucking, just feel like, what the fuck am I doing here? I couldn't sleep. It's like a chaos. It's chaos. It's just all these people in this empty dust bowl getting high and doing whippets and there was like a very dark side to all of this you know mm -hmm. it was like a lot of very intense people and i wasn't prepared for it and then we go, finally go to see the show and like i proceed to take every single drug that's possibly available to me i take like fucking ecstasy i smoke opium i take mushrooms i smoke hash weed and like by the time the show started i'm like laying on the ground i can't even get up and then the music starts playing and i'm like this sucks <laughs> you know like what is this music like yeah. i thought it was going to be heavy pink floyd type shit you know and and it, and it wasn't you know it was like this sort of noodly country music and i'm like oh what the fuck is going on and i'm just trying to not lose my cool because everybody's wanting knows this is my first show and i didn't want to disappoint my friends by having a miserable time but i was absolutely suffering yeah and then you know finally the show ends and i start to come down and i start to get my shit together and like Everyone gets in the car. It's like, okay, we're going to go drive to Philly now and see the next show. And I'm yeah. like, wait, we're not going home? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they drag me to like three more shows, you know, and like we don't have tickets to these shows. So we're out in the parking lot, you know, where you hold your finger up. When you, when you need a ticket, you walk around, you have a sign that says, I need a miracle. Mm -hmm. And you have your finger up and you hope that some kind person is going to give you a ticket. And I was like, please, please don't give me a ticket. So then when they go into the show, I could go and sleep in the car. And I got a fucking ticket and I'm like up there in the balcony and I'm like sitting there for three hours, just like dead on my feet, trying to dance because I didn't want to disappoint anybody. And I wasn't ready to contend with the fact that I hated the Grateful Dead yeah. and didn't want anything to do with it. You know, anyway, it, it, it ended, you know, and I managed to get home and I was like, eh, something wasn't clicking, but I knew I didn't want to stay in Buffalo and I had an opportunity to transfer to to Oregon. A friend of mine was going to the University of Oregon in Eugene. To me, that was like the hippie Mecca. That's where the yeah. good weed came from. And so I transferred to that school and I took all my hippie dreams there. And, you know, once, once I got a good night's sleep, I was, I was happy enough. It's like, okay, I guess I'm a deadhead kind of, even though I was more into like 
Pink Floyd and shit like that, like going to the laser shows at the planetarium on LSD. Yeah. That was like my shit. And, you know, I was still a virgin and I'm still like have this sort of very passive personality, this very hippie personality. And I go out to Oregon, right? And then I'm really in it. You know, there's nothing but white people. There's not, it's not really a city. It's like a small city, Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. And it's like a famous place. It's like, that's like actually the campus where they shot Animal House. Okay. And also Oregon, or which is burned down to the ground. There's just a plaque where it used to stand. But, it's, you know, in the surrounding areas, it's famous because like Ken Kesey was, was from there. And um, I actually got to go to Ken Kesey's compound and I saw the bus and like oh. all this like legend and I got to rap at Ken Kesey's compound and I met Ken Babs and all these people and I managed to find all of that eventually by being there and like I you know I actually was in a band that opened up for the Grateful Dead you know and it was actually a Grateful Dead the Grateful Dead canceled because Jerry Garcia had OD'd mm -hmm. and we had an opportunity to like they needed to scramble to because it was like two days before the show so they got all these local bands to play and I wrote this rap about Jerry Garcia it was a whole fucking thing but I'm getting a little ahead of myself so I'm in this hippie environment there's no white people and it's like you go a little bit outside of this this sort of liberal mecca and you're in rural Oregon mm -hmm. which is a very white conservative racist you know racist white supremacist place and it was weird it was fucking weird and also the college is a very all-american type college it had like a whole fraternal and sorority system which was completely alien to me and i became fascinated with that and i actually rushed the frats and i was like a got jobs washing dishes and sororities yeah. i was trying to date sorority girls i'm like this little fucking long-haired john lennon guy yeah. who somehow infiltrated the sorority hitting on these barbie dolls you know trying to like uh, trade up you know and i i don't I, I guess i was so fascinated them because they were so unattainable yeah. and i guess maybe on some way i was trying to avoid my sexual fears by like pursuing these women that i couldn't get <laughs> you know and uh Anyway, I'm in Oregon for like a year, two years, and then it something's not adding up. I'm starting to realize that there's something different about me. Yeah. You know, so, that, you, as a pause, are you doing art uh, by like as your major right now at this point? No, I'm drifting through school. I'm just okay. I'm drifting through school. I have no major. I think I tried to be a psychology major because I was into head shit. Yeah. You know, I remember when I was getting into all my, I was still into my LSD shit and I was reading Young and Be Here By Now by Ram Dass and, yeah. you know, all this Timothy Leary. I was really into all of this stuff. And I was, they, they had like, you know, it was a very liberal college. So we was taking classes in Nietzsche and, you know, and Young and all this stuff. And I was really kind of thinking like maybe this can go somewhere and then they required you to take a class in statistics and that's when i was like i can't do this <laughs> you know it was just i didn't i didn't have the i didn't have the the the, the mental wherewithal to 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 really tackle anything overly academic you know I, yeah. I was a c student all the way through and what i really i was getting better at the bass and i was playing in bands like jam bands and you know uh and I was just really coming out of my shell. I did finally lose my fucking virginity. 
you know, it was a stop and go affair with a lot of mistakes and errors and hookups, regrettable hookups. But I did finally manage to start having sex. Okay, we got to We can't just gloss over that. Like, let's go into a little detail. What? How, how did you get from not being able to close in high school and a little bit of college to all of a sudden? Well, I mean, I would, I would eventually here and there a girl would take interest in me. And that gets, unfortunately, like a lot of really awesome women were into me. I just always talked myself out of it because I never saw, I always felt like I was gonna, I don't know. I never felt adequate. Yeah. And I don't, I, I mean, these are some of the regrets that followed me into later in life. I don't give a shit now because it's whatever. I'm happy with where I am right now, but you know, like I would never, I just couldn't, I, I had so much sense of inadequacy and inferiority that I couldn't, but every once in a while, like a dorky little gal would show up that I felt was within my measure, mm-hmm. you know, and I would, you know, make out and fool around a little bit, you know, and I'd little by little, you know, would start to get my first blow job, you know, and like, <laughs> but then I would always push them away. Yeah. You know, because I had these unattainable crushes. I had this year-long obsession with this sorority girl, you know, this blonde Barbie type who was friendly to me a little bit. And we had a couple of interesting intellectual conversations, so I became obsessed with her. You know, but I had no, I was such an over-the-top, you know, dramatic, romantic idiot. Like, I would show up out of nowhere and make this big scene and give her flowers and, you know, just like all the typical dumb shit that nerds who don't know any yeah. better we interrupt this broadcast of toys on top to bring you this earth two aliens have landed earthling i want lowbrow art and bootleg toys toys, 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 toys. when you come to the right place earth to kentucky is a shop for folks who love vintage sci-fi lowbrow and art bootleg toys toys toys, toys, toys. they're located over there at 836 main street Covington, kentucky toys, toys, toys. they carry original art vintage action figures designer bootleg toys and toys, 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 toys and t-shirts designed exclusively for their store by some of their favorite artists thank you earthling i enjoy earth to kentucky I have all my favorite bootleg art toys. toys. Hey, look at that over there. It's a spaceship. Yeah. I need to go now. Someone's filming me in my spaceship. Shop now. www.earthtokentucky.com. That's earth2kentucky.com. Or just land your spaceship when they're open. Do. You know, but every once in a while, these little grimy little art girls would like come into the picture and just little by little by little, I started to get more sexual experience to the point where maybe I wasn't quite so worried about it anymore. And I started like waking up a little bit. And what started to really make me think is because I'm hanging out with all kinds of different people, but realizing now being from New York made me a little different. Mm -hmm. And I like was never really, I had put my New York self aside and really tried to be this hippie person. But after being out there for a couple of years and seeing what it was really like, I realized that maybe it wasn't for me. And I was starting to realize that my sort of smart acidness was getting me more traction than than my sort of peace love, you know, hey, it's all groovy man persona. Yeah. Just right around the time Paul's Boutique came out okay. by, the, by the Beastie Boys. I got caught up in the hoopla of License to Ill, you know, because I was still in high school when that came out. And we knew people who knew the Beastie Boys, like Harvitz lived a few blocks away from me. Yeah. I was intimidated by him because I knew he was like a big deal. But like, I would see him on the street. It was like, it was a big deal when the Beastie Boys came out because it was like something that came out of our world. Yeah. You know, like a downtown kids like made it big because that record was huge at the time, you know, and it was like a big deal. And I liked it. 
but then I grew out of it as my hippie vibe came out. And I remember distinctly, I was at a party and I was DJing with cassettes and I was playing, I don't remember what I was playing, but I put on Fight for Your Right to Party. Yep. And this was like, that came out in 86. I put that on in 89 and it got booed resoundingly. I was like, oh, okay. And I fast forwarded the tape and uh, Staying Alive by the Bee Gees comes on. And everyone's like, yeah, because this is when like the 70s yeah. revival was kicking in and people were, I was getting into the crate digging and buying all these old soul records that have already gone through the 60s shit. And then I started getting into all the black shit, mm -hmm. you know, Funkadelic, Parliament, Parliament, all the James Brown stuff. My friends had me going on Miles Davis and all of this shit. And everybody was like hearing all this, you know, I, the 70s music was coming into vogue. And Paul's Boutique was all about riffing all that shit, the Curtis Mayfield samples, all of that. And what I liked about it is because like I, I was over licensed ill, but you could tell that the Beastie Boys had changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like they still had that 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 attitude that like, but it was a little toned down. It was yeah. a little more intellectual. It was a little more down to earth. And there was something musically going on behind it that was so much more sophisticated than licensed to ill. And so Paul's Boutique became my persona. Okay. It was like, like, this is how I'm going to get over out here in Oregon, you know, by being like this, mm -hmm. you know, and I had, I got my drum machine and I started making little raps and putting my own together beats together and started doing all these little mixes and stuff like that. I still have no major in school. Like <laughs> school is no, not important to me at all. And, and I started succeeding with girls because I figured if you could push people's buttons a little bit and put people on their toes, you would become intriguing. Yeah. And like, I just thought it's like, I found a certain confidence in this affectation. And also because I was the only person from New York, nobody could call me a poser because they didn't know any better. Like if I tried yeah. to pull this routine in New York, they, you know, like rapping and trying to like, you know, whatever they would call me out but in Oregon nobody knew and I was able to like build up a personality around this and I started succeeding but this is where I this is what happened was uh eventually I was forced to choose a major and uh, I was like in I had like three years worth of college and I was like taking like the minimum uh, minimum credit load but eventually I started approaching my junior year and I was like you have to have a major and I, I didn't, I didn't have any ideas. I thought the art was close to me, but I, and I was still just taking classes for the fun of it. I never thought to become a music major because, again, it was too hard. Mm -hmm. You know, like I didn't want to have to learn all the. I can, I was able to read and write music a little bit, but I didn't want to get into the advanced shit. As I always, once I get to the intermediate stage of anything, I, I, cry, I crap out. But <laughs> I, I was really into Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I was really into the my into playing my bass, and I wanted to make. I was into the runes on Led Zeppelin Four. I was always so obsessed with all the cryptic secret messages. I was playing. I would be playing the record backwards, and you can yeah. actually hear some part where he says, like, "Here's to my sweet Satan." It's just the sonic coincidence, but mm -hmm. there is a definitive part of Stairway to Heaven where, if you want to hear it, he says. Here's the my sweet Satan, you know, he'll give you 666. And I was like so obsessed with that shit. And I wanted to make a pendant of John Paul Jones's rune from Led Zeppelin IV. Mm -hmm. So I took a jewelry and metalsmithing class specifically just to do that. And I did it. And I made my little bronze Led Zeppelin medallion, which I still have, I think. And um, I was fairly good at the metal work. 
like I was good with making shit with my hands. I couldn't draw, but I could make, I could assemble shit and I can solder and I could, and I had some ideas and the teacher was this kind of younger, hotter, milfy kind of woman. And I had a yeah. good banter with her because I was doing my beastie boy shtick and she encouraged me. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to be a metals major. Mm -hmm. And so I, became part I, I declared my major as like fine art metal metal work mm -hmm. it's like okay so I started doing that and then I had to take drawing again and all these other classes but for whatever reason it was a different time it was a different I had changed enough that I was able to skate through the formal drawing class because I was a metal major it didn't matter as much that I sucked at drawing and I was able to skate through with a with like a c plus and I was just very good at creating controversy. Like all my teachers loved me because what I lacked in formal skill, I would bring theatrics and, you know, I would, you know, I was very challenging. I used to like to confront people and have de big debates and, yeah. you know, create, stir the pot. I remember one time I was such an idiot. Like uh, I was at a drawing class and there was like a nude model there. You know, mm -hmm. we had to draw this nude model. And I had to be Mr. Provocateur and she was up there and she was this outspoken, you know, hippie chick. And she was like giving us shit about being pampered college students. And I throw this at her. I'm like, isn't being a nude model just the same thing as being a prostitute? I mean, after <laughs> all, you're selling your body, aren't you? You know, you're renting out your body for money, which, you know, I guess maybe intellectually is isn't isn't untrue but yeah. you know of course saints and saying something like that where like nowadays you know sex work is just work just like anything else but at the time it was an extremely provocative thing to have said especially in this sort of third wave feminist environment you know and she started giving me shit about how none of y'all you know little pampered students have the guts to stand up here and you know get naked so i was like oh really <laughs> no know? way so, yeah yeah so i just took off all my fucking clothes and i stood there and kept drawing and and everyone started drawing me and her and you know and after a while me and her were like ah she was like oh maybe you're not so bad after all but like that's the kind of stunt I used to pull yeah. and like it it got me a lot of cre it got me a lot of uh, credence with my teachers you know where I where I sort of lacked in just like formal ability and of course the metalsmithing got to the second year and then suddenly it started getting harder okay and um. And I stopped uh, and I, I disappointed the teacher because the whole thing was designed that ultimately you were going to be a professional jeweler sitting on the bench, working for some famous jewelry maker mm -hmm. and just flawlessly executing someone else's designs for high end, for a high end jewelry company. That was what they were grooming you for. I was like, that's not what I want to do. I just want to make whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. And I, and I bailed and then I just became a general sculpture major. And by that time I learned that I had no goals. Mm -hmm. I really thought I was going to be a musician and I had no art goals. I was just staying in college. So I, cause I had to finish. It was very important to my parents that I finished and they were paying for it. So I was like, fuck it. I, all I get to do, I, I do, I make art, which I can fake. And I've carried all of this shit into my toy career, by the way, I can <laughs> fake my way through art. Yeah. And it gives me plenty of time to smoke pot and party and play bass. And so I just became a regular sculpture major and I managed to eke my way through. And at the, the final the final year, it took me six years to finish school. I was a, I created I, I, it was all independent study. Yeah. And I found this old Jewish lady who was a teacher there to, to, to sponsor my independent study. And like it just got in my head. I want to make toys. 
I want to make art toys, the art that is based on toys. Like I, it was always still part of my mind and I wanted to be cheeky. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in detail in the next episode, which is going to discuss the toy, the toy business. But I made this thing called the action crack house playset. Yeah. Thinking like, Oh yeah, I want to make, I want to make the point wasn't so much to make toys at the time. It was more like I wanted to, play with irony so i wanted to make something that like looked like a kid's toy but had very dark undertones yeah. so i made this thing it looked like a little fisher price playset, but it was like a crack house and my concept of the crack house basically came from spike lee's movie jungle fever yeah. you know so i just sort of made that and and somehow managed to pass and piss off a lot of people in the process but i had a cool new york old jewish lady as my teacher who went to bat for me and just thought I was absolutely wonderful and passed me with A pluses. And I managed to fucking somehow get out of college. Yeah. And then I had no clue as to what to do. And I decided to stay in Oregon and I moved into the art neighborhood, which was like a rundown little dump where all the meth heads used to hang out. It was near the train tracks where all the transients who rode the rails used to come. And there was like the Alcoholics Anonymous place and people were doing heroin and there were flop houses. And, you know, and there was also some like hippie, you know, bakeries. There was all these people that were living off the grid. Like yeah. there was just this weird neighborhood where all these all these sort of like the end of the road types would wound up and that's where all the artists were. <laughs> and so I lived in this neighborhood and my goal was I'm going to play bass. I had a band at the time, this group called the Harry Mamas, you know, and it was a rap group. And what it was, it was like these, these two gals that I knew from the, from the, from the West Eugene, the hippie scene, there were like these chicks from Baltimore and New York, but they were full hippies, you know, with the hairy armpits and, yep. you know, and the vegetarian and like, you know, the collective parenting and, and the whole, the whole, you know, contemporary hippie thing, but they were also very East coast and they rapped and they rapped about conscious shit that was relevant to the, to the times. And I, and we had a little, I was a bass player. We had a drummer and we used to play all over Eugene and it was like a rollicking time, never made any money, but like I was doing the music and we made a demo tape and everything. That was the first thing I ever put out that had the word psychedelic on it was the Harry Mama's mixtape, which is lost to time. But, and, and I was gonna do that and I was gonna make my art. And then my mm -hmm. art just was like little sculpy figures. And needless to say, I suffered tremendously that year because I couldn't make any money to save my life. The music paid pennies and it wasn't happening frequently enough. How much money am I gonna make selling cassette tapes to like a limited group of people? I couldn't, there was nowhere to sell the artwork. I had no concept really of what I was doing. There was like the only type of art galleries there were like these like very traditional, like selling, you know, decorative art to 50 year old, 60 year old rich white ladies. Yeah. Or there was like the craft fair and there, or it was like a bunch of hippies, you know, hanging up these like fucking amateurish you know, scrawlings in a, in a basement, you know, there was no money to be made. And I just struggled. I was on food stamps. I had these loser jobs. I had a radio state. I was at the college radio station doing this quirky radio show. I was very immersed. I'm doing, I was doing exactly the same thing I was doing. I'm doing now, but at a much <laughs> more proto state and making no money, you know, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't make it. The final thing I did out there was I made this rap tape. I was a rapper called MC Milk Toast. 
And I used to, and it was like, this was before Beck. This was yeah. before the sort of ironic rapper, you know, and I was doing this, like, I'm not a great rapper. I'm not a tough guy. You know, it's just like at the time, you know, being a rapper had a certain image. You had like Wu-Tang Clan had just come out and like NWA. And I'm like this nerdy white guy. I called myself MC Milktoast to like take the piss out of myself. And in a way you can kind of almost see the origins of the suck Lord in that, you know, yeah. the sort of self-deprecation was sort of built into this, this burgeoning persona. You know, and so I made a tape and I poured myself into it. I was had the mixer and the six track recorder. It was like a four track, you know, recording on little cassette tapes and the drum machine. And I spent like a year making this tape and I made a music video for it. And I finally, finally managed to eke out after much struggle, like 20 cassettes, gave them to my friends. I thought the whole world was going to eat this thing up because it was so heady and brilliant and all the deep cuts. And if you listen to it 200 times, you're going to hear all the shit you didn't hear before. It was like, yeah. you know, it was this magnum opus and no one gave a flying fuck at all. And then I just kind of realized toward the end of that year that like, I'm not going to make it. This isn't going to happen for me. And I was like, I decided I was going to go back, had to go back to New York. Mm -hmm. It was like, I was either going to move to Portland and just fail on a bigger scale in the same way or go go back to New York. And I didn't want to leave because we had everything. We had our music studio. We had like all the vintage gear, the Hammond organ, the Fender Rhodes, the Wurlitzer, like the whole Beastie Boys. We were on that beast, check your head now. Yeah. Wow. You know, when we were just like making all the, you know, and just like, but it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't going anywhere. And all my friends were disappointing me because they didn't have the same level of passion that I did. And I was living in the slums and like I was getting robbed by meth heads and just like, it was just a bad, it was bad. But the last thing I did when I was making this tape, this mixtape, this MC Milktoast tape, I was really into crate digging. And like I was into putting dialogue into my beats. I could make these tracks and then I would go and I had all these old storybook records and dialogue and spoken word records. And like the more obscure and weird it was, the better. And I'm digging through, look, I had this kind of robotic sounding clavinet beat with nothing on it. And I was like, I'm not going to rap on this. I think I'm going to make this an instrumental. I had a little scratching. And I pull out this record called The Story of Star Wars. Oh, you know? shit. Here yeah. we go. I was like, oh, wow, Star Wars. That's a deep cut. That's yeah. really obscure because, you know, this is like 91, 92. And, you know, this has been years since, since anyone really thought about Star Wars. This was just right at the time when like Air of the Empires came out and all yeah. those new books. Like Star Wars was, these were what they considered the lost years of Star Wars. And so I thought, wow, this is really deep nostalgic shit. So I just took like the Death Star plans are not in the main computer. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this works. This is cool. Hey, you know, it would be funny if I made a little video for this where it was just like a storm, a stop motion of a stormtrooper breakdancing, stormtrooper figure breakdancing. That's a good idea. And then I fucking forgot about it. And I hightailed it back to New York City, moved back in with my mom and had absolutely nothing going for myself. My degree was useless. I had yeah. no fucking skills. I had nothing going on. Here I am in New York City of the year, like 1994, 24, 25 years old, living at my mom's house with absolutely zero going for me. Whatever I had achieved in Oregon as a rapper was not going to fly in New York. I was well aware of that. And I just hung that the fuck up. And like I had made a few furtive efforts to like get into the art world. And I was so green. I had no idea what I was doing. And that was close to me. So everything I was doing there was just suddenly done. Mm -hmm. I was like, 
And my mom's like, well, you got to make some fucking money. You've got some student loans to pay off and you got to do something. And like the goal was, I'm not going to live at my mom's house mm-hmm. forever. I'm just here temporarily to get on my feet. And then I'm going to, and I go out looking for a job and I could not find a fucking job to save my life. And I'm telling you, I dodged the biggest bullet in my life because my mom got so fed up with me and she was working as an insur- in an insurance office and just doing boring, boring insurance shit. The nipple clamp stuff was over. Mm-hmm. And um, she was angling to get me a job in the mailroom, working at the same insurance company that my mom was working at. And thank God there was a guy working in the mailroom, this older Dominican guy who ran the mailroom. And he got scared when he heard, God bless him, you know, he he did something a little shady, but he saved my life. He was worried that this white, young, college-educated dude was going to come into his job and and displace him. He was really worried that like I was going to disrupt the status quo that he had going for himself. I mean, he was poor. He wasn't educated. He was older. He had a family, and he had a nice racket going on yeah. with whatever he was doing, and he was the master of his domain, and he felt that me being there was going to didn't even know me, but just the idea that like a young white college educated kid was going to come in, was going to displace him. So he sabotaged it. He went like around my mother's back and talked to the higher ups and sabotaged it. Thank fucking God he did that because who knows how many years I would have wasted in my life doing that pointless job. Right at the exact same time, I got hired at this place called Canal Gene Company, which was one of the places I used to buy my punk clothes back in the day. They used to be on Canal Street and they were both mostly known for army surplus shit because back in the day, Canal Street was like a lot of army surplus and you could buy, you could usually buy decommissioned like missiles down Mm. there back in the day. You know, there was this place called the trader Canal Street was weird, you know, and you could buy all manner of junk and bric-a-brac. But they had they they had got some success and they moved to Soho and they had this big, you know, three story store and they had like in the basement was like the army surplus shit and the used jeans, which they were very famous for. And then the ground floor was like club wear and vintage wear, high end vintage shit. And then then there was like a lingerie section and then they had a Levi's store. And then on top of that, they had offices and then they had a big warehouse on the fourth floor. They would get these bales of clothes and they would sort from like goodwill and sort them and everything and then on the top floor they had the art department mm-hmm. and i just managed somehow because of the just enough of my portfolio from college and because the guy running it was like this young gay guy and i kind of charmed him a little bit he yeah. gave me a chance so i managed to get work in the art department of fucking canal gene company and it was fucking great i didn't pay shit and it didn't give me the opportunity to move out of my mom's house but it was a perfect reintroduction into new york city this is like 95 and like things had changed a lot like um giuliani in a lot of ways was a horrible mayor and everybody you know he did a lot of things that people hated and today he's unrecognizable as just this ridiculous crank but the one one thing he did do uh was that he he broke the bone he broke the back of the mafia you know he 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 fucked over the mafia and by extension really and this even started when he was the attorney general and fucked over a lot of like the hold that like the criminal element had over parts of the Lower East Side. You know, there was places like below canals, below Houston Street on the east side. Like, you know, like if you wanted to be a slumming artist, you went to Alphabet City, like the East Village Alphabet City. And the Lower East Side was a whole other thing. 
You know, I mean, of course, you know, like the Velvet Underground lived there a little yeah. bit back in the '60s, but by the by the '80s and the early '90s, it was it was a it was drug wars. There was nothing there. There was no reason to go there, and that changed. And then suddenly, this whole new area of downtown opened up, and all these new generations of creative people started moving in and setting up shop and. And then uh, and, and Canal Jeans was like right on Broadway, just just west of that area. And coming into that place for me was great because all my high school friends were were done. I didn't wasn't friends with them anymore. And Canal Jeans, it was uh, you know it was full of like young gay kids and club kids. There were kids from Chinatown that worked there. There were kids from like East New York, like hood kids working there. Kids from the Bronx. There were like young Soho kids that were the children of famous artists yeah. working there and it was just like a lot of queer people it was just people a lot of immigrants it was a lot of people from africa and people from the dominican republic and it was just great and because i was in the art department i was technically all over the store and i just made a whole slew of new friends and i started getting acculturated to this whole new downtown new york energy that was coming coming about and what was great about being in this art department is they let you do whatever the fuck you want you know just like hey hey uh the the vintage women's vintage needs needs a refresh you know go go do something so go there like take all these broken mannequins it was great because they never threw anything away and they had all these mannequins that were in just these wretched states of repair that you could disrepair you could do anything to them it's like i'm gonna make a freak show and here's like frankenstein you know wearing like the suits from the from the from the department and here's like someone with nails banged in their head with blood dripping off their face you know (laughs) wearing the dress from the thing they didn't care yeah. And, you know, and I learned how to do a lot of shit that I didn't learn how to do in art school, like graphic design and working with foam corn, making signs and using spray paint. None of this shit I learned in art school and, you know, building and assembling and, and it was great. And uh, but this job wasn't going to last because it didn't pay any fucking money. And it was a horrible place to work in some ways because the owner of this place was a maniacal tyrant. He, would, he was completely absent, mm-hmm. you know, and he had more money than he knew what to do with. And then he would occasionally show up at the end of the day and see all this stuff that he didn't approve of. How'd that get there? Take that down. And we'd all have to stay late, you know, executing his whims that could have been avoided if he had just been present from the beginning. It was just like, and like long standing beloved employees would like suddenly get fired for no reason. It was yeah. like Game of Thrones in a way, you know, just like one, there'd be this person that you'd assumed was a fixture that had been there forever. And then one day they were just gone for some dumb reason. It was just like, I can't stay here. I'm only making seven bucks an hour. I'm never going to get out of my mom's house. And at the time on the side, I was working on more music because this was also the time of the the bedroom DJ. Yeah. Like, like there was this sort of democratization of music where all this equipment became accessible, affordable. All you needed like a little drum machine, a sampler, maybe a turntable and something to record it on. And there you were, you were a music producer and all these on this, all this whole scene in the city of just all these like independent DJs, all this, like the Ilbient and drum and bass and jungle and all these like sort of like homemade musicians were getting all this play and all these little indie record stores, like breakbeat science and, you know, Kim's Kim's, music where you could just walk in there and be like, Hey, I made a cassette. Will you take it on consignment? And they'd be like, yeah. And there was all these publications that would write about this, you know, like all these local magazines and like, it was huge. And I was like, I'm doing this. 
I had friends that were DJs. And I was like, I'm going to make a record. You know, I'm like, what am I going to make a record of? You know, I realized like the last record I had made was too personal. Mm-hmm. And like, I need to make something that's going to catch. And coincidentally, this was the time when the Star Wars revival was, was coming back in. Yeah. Like they had announced like, oh, there's going to be new Star Wars movies and the special editions and the Star Wars machine is gearing up. And because it had been out for so long, it came back with this heavy nostalgia, Mm -hmm. you know, where now Star Wars was like retro and like you were kind of cool if you knew what it was. You know, this was like this was at the beginning of like sort of the mashup culture, you know, where like everything old was being made new again and all these like deep cut references and remixes were becoming the thing and like Star Wars was just like sort of just perfectly situated where it was nostalgic enough that it was didn't make you a nerd anymore. It's like if you yeah. knew a little bit about Star Wars, you were kind of cool. I was like, I can't believe this is happening. I cannot believe this is happening. Yeah. So and like and it was also something was about to happen and like the toy industry was revving up and I was just like I saw this huge opportunity for myself. It's like okay my record is gonna be a Star Wars record. I'm gonna make Star Wars breakbeats. I'm going to take that one little experiment I did with my last record and make a whole album of that shit. So I had my little drum machine and my sample and I started just making beats and loops and and taking samples from Star Wars and cutting it in and making all, you know, and it was working. It was you know, playing it for my friends when it was working and I managed to get it out on a cassette. And and I had um, you know, sold a couple of them. I got written up in Grand Royal Magazine, the Beastie Boys yeah. magazine. They did a one-page review of it. Like I was like, wow, think like things were happening. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this is fucking working. And and I also was like, I gotta get out of Canal Jeans. You know, I was starting to realize like this record is what I'm gonna do. And I started realizing I had to go to events to promote this music. You know, I had to start DJing. I had to start showing up to places. And I was like, well, I can't just show up as Morgan Phillips with this face. You know, like, yeah. what's the, I need a character. I mean, this is Star Wars music. I need to have that spectacle that goes along with it. And so I was remembering how much I used to like to dress up as Boba Fett when I was a go. kid. I was like, why don't I just do that? But I'll make it a, a, a hip hop Boba Fett. So I got like the Don Post mask and I had a local graffiti artist like write all the bounty hunters names on it in graffiti. And and I got like these Nikes with the fat laces and I had the utility. I just went and did exactly what I did when I was a kid. You know, I got the utility belt with the markers in it and I had like the fake gold chain and I had all all of the gear like to to be I had a turntable for a backpack and I had all this gear that was gonna make me like this hip hop Boba Fett character that was then gonna go in and sell this music. So all I needed was the, a, a, a suit. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what else to, what, what to do. And in Canal Jeans, and I had already given my two weeks notice, I actually got hired for 13 bucks an hour to go work in the display department at FAO Schwartz. That's good money was, at that time. Good money at the time. And it was just like, and I, need, and I needed it. And I was just sick of, I was sick of working. I was just like sick of working there. I had like, I had so much fun, so many wild adventures and, but it was just, it wasn't going anywhere. And I also decided I wasn't going to be one of these casualties that left this place in bitterness. You know, so I gave my two weeks notice and I worked 
diligently and honestly until the very last minute of that two weeks. And everybody was astonished, you know, because no one ever did that in the history of that place. It was a type of place where people would just quit on the spot yes. and storm out. So what happened was I had set up this display in the basement. It was my crowning achievement. It was like a, it was like just for the vintage jeans. And it was basically like a, like a, 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 a space environment they let me do whatever i want and i put all these star background on the wall and these mannequins were up on these high shelves i made all these little planets out of little balls of foam that i painted and i had the death star in there i had the board ship and i had all these characters dressed up like star trek guys and bug men and and cyborgs i have photos of all of this shit it was so cool and there was this one guy he was dressed like an astronaut and he had this really dope like vintage flight suit it's mm -hmm. like a gray zip up you know, like Air Force thing. And it was beautiful and it was exactly my size and was up on the mannequin. And I was like, that's what I need to finish my Boba Fett costume. And so I asked the woman that was in charge of the of the display of the of the vintage department, could I buy it? And she didn't really know what it was and she didn't know how to price it and she was just didn't want to sell it to me. Yeah. And I was like, fuck that. You know, and this is where the villainy began. Yeah. Because I was like, I was trying to do everything above board, but it was like, there was no way I wasn't going to take that. And as much as I, as, as honorably as I was trying to leave that job, I still had a lot of resentment and fuck you towards that place because of just the way they treated people. So my plan, and they used to search you, you know, when you, every time, if you worked there, every time you walked out, they would go through your shit, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and look and make sure you wouldn't steal anything because most of this stuff had, the little sensors on it but like if you worked in the vintage department you had access to the unprocessed stuff where you could conceivably rip something off if you wanted and that's exactly what i was going to do so it's like what do i do here so i went down to canal street on my lunch break and went to this surplus electronics store this place called argo electronics where i used to buy a lot of the broken bits of, of mechanical ephemera to use in my displays and i bought a five dollar vcr this shitty fucking vcr and I took it up to the display shop on my last day and I opened it up, the Phillips screwdriver, and I took all the guts out. I got the flight suit. I put it inside the VCR, sealed it up and walked right out of the building. You know, he was going with the security guard. I was like, hey, it's my last day, man. It was great working here. I'll see you another time. And it was great. And I was like, oh, I also have this VCR. And he's like, okay, cool. I walked out and I had my suit. You know, and I had left the job having done a crime and that made me feel great. <laughs> and I actually had the fucking balls to go to the Canal Jeans Halloween party after I'd quit wearing the fucking suit. Fuck you. And I also managed at the same time to skewer some girl who'd broken my heart by bringing another girl. And there's all these photographs of me making out with this one girl and it created all this jealousy with this other girl. And I went out with a fucking bang, you know, and I had my Star Wars tape and I had this new character and I'm like going into my new job. And it was like, fucking everything was going great. Okay. I got the job at fucking FAO Schwartz and I fucking hated it. Yeah. They were, it was, it was so different. It was so corporate. It was so miserable. They had these ridiculous schedules. It was freelance, so it was unpredictable. And I, I fucking, I hated it. And there was an opportunity then at this time to do the same type of thing, but for Hasbro. Mm -hmm. And because Hasbro used to do these elaborate toy fairs over yeah. there on, the, on 23rd Street. Like there was the 
toy building. It was like a building where all the toy industries had their offices and where during every year during the annual trade show, they would show their new stuff. But Hasbro and Mattel had their own showrooms. And this was an opportunity to go work in the Hasbro showroom. And they had the Star Wars license. And my strategy at the time was I made the Star Wars breakbeats. I had it on cassette and the goal was I was going to pitch it to Lucas. Mm -hmm. Like I thought like they're going to hear this record and they're going to think it's a fucking brilliant masterpiece. And, and they're going to hire me to do this. And so I had friends with the guy that published Star Wars Insider Magazine. And he floated that record up to Lucas Licensing. And they were like, no, we can't do this. It's cool. They didn't understand it. And it was like, well, you're sampling the actors' voices. You're sampling all this shit. We can't clear this stuff. I didn't know anything about how licensing worked. I yeah. figured it's Star Wars. You own all of that shit. So you... And I found out it was more complicated than that. And then I, but I didn't want to give up. And I, and I figured like, I want to sell this record. And what happened to my friend who worked for Star Wars Insider was that he had originally been putting out an indie magazine called Star Wars Generation, which was just like a self-published zine about Star Wars. And it got big and Lucasfilm shut it down. And instead of putting him out of business, they gave him a job. And they okay. hired him to, to, to restart their fanzine, which became Star Wars Insider. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm just going to put this record out myself. And it's going to become so fucking, fucking famous that um, they're, they're going to have to contend with me. Yeah. So I redid it on CD. I worked my ass off for years. I'm working. I worked at Hasbro for like two, three years. The hype towards Phantom Menace is like just cresting. And I have and I'm working I'm working at Hasbro and I'm trying to insinuate, I'm trying to address this from all fronts because I knew that Star Wars, this is in 1997 and this was when the special editions came down and this is yeah. when they were going to do this big product dump and Star Wars was like their flagship thing. Everyone was betting big on this coming back strong and I knew this is my area of expertise and like if I can get in that Star Wars room and work on the Star Wars shit that'll put me next to people who are working for Lucas and people that are working on the Star Wars team at Hasbro and as soon as they see me they're gonna fucking love me and I'm gonna ascend and I'm gonna work for Star Wars yeah and they have this whole fucking room in there uh of it's like it's set up like the bridge of the Star Destroyer right and it's like they have these little windows with little dioramas in them. There was like one from each movie that was like indoor forest scene. There was a Hoth scene and then there was the cantina. And I would go in there every day to check the progress and look at the figures and the people that were working there. This is like my first year working there. And these were like their senior sculptors and their senior set designers and were really going in on this. And I was just this new kid who was just asking a lot of annoying questions and being a pest to the point where they had to tell me to get the fuck out. It's like, get the, go get out. Yeah. You can't come back in here. Cause they were all very touchy because, you know, they really needed to impress the big wigs with this shit. And I was not helping. And I was, so they sent me to my regular, what I was doing, which was working in the fucking Spirograph room, you know, and I was like putting up vinyl on the walls of Spirograph and working in Play Doh and doing all this boring shit. And I was like, oh man, cause I knew the Lucas people were coming. And I thought, this is my only chance. This yeah. is my only chance. You know, so about an hour before the Lucas people came in, I went in the room and I looked around. I wasn't supposed to be there. And I looked at the Cantina diorama and 4LOM was in there. 
And I was like, you put a droid in the cantina, you got to take that out. You can't have, like, they had all the wrong figures in the dioramas. Yeah. They didn't know, because this is, this is like right before the first look. Mm -hmm. And these were the people that worked for the company. Like, it wasn't, we weren't working directly for Hasbro. We were a contractor that Hasbro hired. We were a display company that Hasbro hired to do their, their room. So the people that were doing the setup didn't necessarily know about Star Wars. And they didn't know. They were just product they were just display and merchandising people. They yeah. didn't realize it mattered that much. So they just put whatever, wherever. And I was like, no, you got to put the four LOM goes here and there can't be droids in the cantina. They were like, get out. You know, because we were working to like two, three o'clock in the morning. Everybody was at the end of their wits. And like they, and I, they'd already told me to get the fuck out. So I go, I go back and I finally go home. Like, oh my God, there's droids in the cantina. There's droids in the cantina, you know? <laughs> And so the next day I go to work and it was the day that Lucasfilm was coming and everybody was on their fucking toes. And they were like, do not go in the fucking room, okay? Just disappear. Yeah. So I go back to Spirograph and I know they're there and I can feel it. I'm like, oh my God, this is my chance. This is my chance. And, and I guess they're, and I'm in Spirograph cutting vinyl and doing this drudgery and I'm almost at, in tears and then the, 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 the they're, they're doing their review and then i suddenly hear over the intercom system morgan go to star wars i'm like what you know so i go running in there and the lucas people are there and um apparently they had brought the people to task for putting droids in the cantina and now suddenly like oh well we have a Star Wars expert on our team who's going to work on the room with you. And I was like, yes, yes, I Hell made yeah. it. You know, so then I got to do the fucking room and I got to do the thing and I got to, I got to be a credible Star Wars person in that lane. And I'm always going for the upsell, trying to get higher and higher and trying to, you know, give them my tape and trying to get them to just pay attention to my Star Wars work, yeah. you know, and listen to my music. And it wasn't fucking happening. It wasn't fucking happening. And I was, I was like, I hired, I had, I hired a publicist and I got this guy to send all these Star Wars CDs to the college radio stations. And I got and and I spent a couple of thousand bucks to like get Star Wars breakbeats in the press. I'm like, you will fucking notice me. You will fucking notice me. And it got on fucking NPR. Got like I did interviewed by Jeez. Linda Wartimer on All Things Considered. It got into the top 40 on the CMJ charts. It got written about in all the cool hipster underground music magazines. It got written about in fucking a little mention in Spin magazine. It got really fucking far. And I was like, any day now, Lucasfilm is going to call me, you know, nothing happened. Nothing fucking happened. And I spent the next like then Phantom Menace comes out and there's this big fucking we're doing the Phantom Menace room now where I'm building this. I was in charge now of building the Watto's junk shop display where they were going to roll out this just like glut of figures. And I was going down to Canal Street with thousands and thousands of dollars and buying all this surplus junk to set to set up the room. I was like a pig and shit. I was so fucking I was loving it. I was like, this is they're going to see how I've hooked this room up. You know, and it was like I got into this fucking fantasy in my head, 
you know, like I knew like I'm Anakin Skywalker and I'm literally, <laughs> I'm literally in Watto's junk shop. And yeah. when the Lucas people come by, they're going to be like Qui-Gon Jinn and the Jedi. And they're going to discover this genius living in obscurity and they're going to yeah. elevate me. I was like, refused to give up this dream that I was going to work for Star Wars. And then the Lucas people came came by again, you know, and by now I had known them a little bit and they were just a bunch of corporate stuff shirts anyway, that didn't give a shit about anything. You know, yeah. I was, up, I was up for a rude awakening, you know, because, um, this guy, this like smarmy fucking corporate guy was like, Hey, he, he comes into Watto's junk shop and he's like, Oh, Hey, look, he points to me and it's like, here's Watto himself. And I'm like, no, oh, no, no, you fuck. understand. I'm, I'm Anakin Skywalker and I'm, you know, and I give him the whole spiel and it's like, no, you're Watto. And then I knew, I realized right then and there, this was a closed door. I'm not going to get to where I want to go from here. And by now I'd been selling this record for like two years and I was making money off of it. And yeah. I knew I wasn't going to get, and Lucasfilm just wouldn't acknowledge it. My friend managed to squeak in a tiny blurb in there in Star Wars Insider about Star Wars Breakbeats. And then no lawsuit came. And then I realized, oh shit, I guess I'm doing this now. I guess I'm a record label now. And I had the whole suit and I was going into the Star Wars celebration and uh, the, you know, they used to have the big line, you know, yeah. this was like before kind of when the internet had just started, you know, and I had just got online. This is like, I was actually selling CDs for the first time on the internet through this record store called Other Music. And they would like sell like $300 worth of CDs in a week. And I was like, wow, this is really popping off. And like, I was blowing up as an independent music maker. It was just Lucasfilm didn't care. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing this. I, I decided that wasn't going to work for me. And I was like, I'm a record producer now. And I would go, they had the Zigfield Theater and like people lined up. If you remember, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but I remember uh, there was a line for a month outside of the every major theater, like the Chinese theater in yeah. LA and the Zigfield theater in New York, all these diehard Star Wars fans were camping out outside the fucking movie theater for like 30 days prior to the release of the movie. And they bought, they still had to buy your ticket at the box office. So they were literally lining up to buy or like every couple of days with the big boom box, blasting my Star Wars music selling the cds and just getting my picture taken and getting on the fucking news and it was just like at this crescendo it was like okay this is my business now i guess fuck lucasfilm you know mm -hmm. you're not you don't want to hire me i don't need you you know i can make it on my own and then you know i had I had everything going for me and then the phantom menace comes out mm -hmm. and it it wasn't that good no <laughs> no it wasn't uh, and then suddenly it was like almost overnight because the hype for this movie had been building for like three fucking years. Yeah. And I rode that fucking wave, you know, to the, to as high as I could go highest that I've ever been in my whole life. And then almost within a matter of days and weeks, it completely crashed. It completely fucking crashed. And suddenly star Wars was out of fashion. People had had a fucking enough of it. And it was just, nobody gave a shit. Yeah. And I couldn't get hired by Lucasfilm. Nobody wanted to buy my record anymore. And I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do now? Oof. And I had nothing. Damn. You, <laughs> I think what's so crazy, you were inches from this, from these people. And then all of a sudden it just goes away so quickly. 
Well, I think my expectations weren't reasonable. I mean, yeah. what, I, what I would come to find much, much later on, now that I've established myself, that I would have been absolutely miserable. Okay. That there was actually no position for somebody like me working for Lucas and Hasbro. You know, what were, I was going to, I would have been lost in that. Yeah. You know, I, 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 they, I wouldn't have been able to do my own thing. I would have had to toe the line. And I wasn't built for that. I, 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 I was so good at getting close to Star Wars. I, I got hired by this company called Golden Turtle, mm -hmm. who had the license for the star they made calendars and they and and they and they had the star wars license and they hired me to like photo edit and write copy mm -hmm. so they would have like the cantina calendar you know and i would go through all yeah. these like these these cd roms of all these photos that we could license from lucasfilm to like pick the images and write the captions and the blurbs and then a graphic designer would make it look good but i was more like the continuity editor and the writer and and all of this had to be submitted to lucasfilm and anytime i tried to embellish or add something or jazz it up a little bit it would be immediately cut down you know anytime i tried to innovate anything like they'd have these film outs of just like screen grabs from the movies and you know you've seen some of these images over and over and over again, there's that famous one on the blockade run of like Darth Vader, like pointing to Princess Leia. Mm -hmm. But then they had on these discs, like an alternate of that, you know, like it's that same shot that we know so well, but here it is like a second later, you know, so I would always pick the B sides and they would know, go with the main photo that everybody knows. And I just kind of realized that they weren't looking for creativity. Yeah. They, and like, and, the, and none of, none of, none of my, none of my aspirations and expectations were realistic and would have, had I known the way things were going to go for me, I would have been happy with it. But at the time, this was like a real blow to me because I didn't, I didn't realize at the time that there was, there was a ceiling there and that, you know, the only way to really enjoy being a creative making Star Wars is to be George Lucas, you know, otherwise yeah. you're just tilling in his vineyards. You know, so, and it was just like, it was disappointing. And then on top of that, the the record, the, the indie shit collapsed at the same time. So I, I was fucked on both ends and Star Wars had just failed for me on all ends. And this is the beginning of toys for you. It that, seems... that's, that's what happened immediately after. Well, it seems that... Um... I think through all of these conversations through art school and through um, being in Eugene and then being in like Portland area and then um, coming back and working and trying to find a job and like you're having to do this over and over again, this reinventing of yourself almost. It's that's what it feels like listening to the story where you're just, okay, everything around me is shit. So I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to make sure that I make something of myself. And it just seems like every instance you're having to do that. It's still happening. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that is the case. But that's, I don't know if that's like that for other people. But that's just been the way my life has worked. And it's actually, it's a lot of, it's, it's very engaging. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, the real conclusion, even though we're only two episodes in, is that, you know, for I think a lot of people who live as artists, it's the yourself is the ultimate work yeah you know the person that you make yourself into is really the work and all the stuff you make is just sort of the the, the byproduct of that the real spectacle 
is the, the, the is the is the is the is the what you make of yourself. I mean, that's your your most potent material is your humanity and your brain and your life. And you know, I was lucky that I was lucky that it all went this way. It all felt like such a struggle the whole way through. It still does a little bit, but you know, thank you for the opportunity to get to just sort of try to lay it out in some sort of narrative fashion because it makes it all sound really fucking heroic to me. Yeah, and I think the outside, the 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 difficult part about the toy scene in general for some of us is that like when we first enter, we we hear names like Sucklord or Healing Maid or Dollar Sight. Like we hear these names and we see where you're at. And that's unrelatable. Like, I, I'm not going to be a suck lord. Like, I can't just join into something and be like your proud. I can't have that. But hearing the story and hearing like, man, I struggled to get here. Like, I, this isn't just an overnight thing. Like, I did this work. That's what's relatable. That's what makes sense to us. Well, the thing is that, I mean, it's just so it's just funny to me because when I hear stuff like that, when people look at me and see me as being the guy, yeah, you know, that they're trying to get to, and all my life, I've been the guy trying to get to the place. Mm. And there's always been something higher than me and beyond me that seemed unattainable that I foolishly went after anyway, and just sort of by accident, you know, sort of became something, you know, like I never, ever felt like I was enough. Yeah, I still don't, you know, but I guess that's not it doesn't matter like it's just it's just interesting and i think what the takeaway hopefully from all of this is aside from me getting glory and fame is that other people realize that it's anybody anybody could do this yeah anybody could pursue them you know just pursuing if you just make the decision to pursue yourself or to go after your you know to to act to fulfill yourself to actualize yourself you know, to make yourself into what it is you think you're supposed to be on their highest level of of your expression as an individual and as a creative person, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Whether you become rich and famous off it or not is another thing. But like, you're going to at least be living in the middle of an interesting story at the, yeah. at the very end of the day, if that's all you get out of your creative pursuit like i often tell myself sometimes when i'm having these epic picturesque experiences and doing these having these monumental moments of just like self awareness and achievement and like living in the midst of something i'd only dreamed about and i'm alone mm. you know nobody's filming it nobody's here sharing it with me and i'm having this epic experience i'm being like well wait a minute i'm getting to see this like i'm the audience for this like, don't waste it. It'd be nice if this was on television, but it's not. And don't, because it's not, don't waste it because you're not famous or you're not famous enough. It's like, you are the, you are the person watching the show. That is your life. If yeah. you're not being entertained by what's happening to you every single day, well then jazz it up, buddy. That, yeah, that is good. I think, yeah, I, 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 it's an, it's, it's tough because you have, I was once told that everyone is someone's Banksy. I don't know what that means. I don't fully know who my Banksy is. I don't know who I'm a Banksy for. But I the 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 problematic piece is that we're always chasing something, regardless of what that is. And I think hearing like you've had to change what you were chasing several times. And that's like that. We don't always just have that one end goal once we get there, it's done. 
sometimes that one main end goal doesn't pan out. And it seems like you've been switching that around a little well, bit. Well, y- yes and no. I think on one hand, you're right when you want to talk about uh, a worldly object acting as the perceived manifestation of that goal mm-hmm. changes. But the, the, the intangible goal is always the same. Like maybe you fixate on different things in the world that seem like achievable accomplishments or access or projects or something that can be achieved in life. And maybe that doesn't work out. Like working for Star Wars was like a goal of mine. But why did I want to work for Star Wars? What was the reason behind wanting to do that? And even though it's not being fulfilled in working for Star Wars, there's still the desire to fulfill that creative urge is still exactly the same. You know, like my conclusion is you're never going to work for Star Wars and you wouldn't have been happy working for Star Wars anyway. The way to really succeed is to make your own Star Wars. Yeah. You know, and like it maybe took some time to realize that, but that isn't any different than the original goal. Like working for Star Wars was never really the goal. It was just the limits of my imagination at the time of what the fulfillment of my goal was. But my the true goal is to just be the ultimate expression of my creative passions, you know, and then the, those will better be served if I blaze my own path rather than following someone else's path and working in someone else's world. It's harder to work, make your own world, but that's that I think the, that passion has remained consistent all the way through, even though the means to getting there may have changed, but yeah. the intention is always exactly the same. Toys on Tap. Next episode. It's great. It's amazing. You're going to want to listen to it. It's not right now, though. You're going to have to wait till the next episode to listen to it. Oh, when's that? The next one. Cool. Toys on Tap. The next one's going to be good, too. So stay tuned and, and, and listen to that. Toys on Tap. Awesome.